0: Chapter 23 of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 23 in Mr. Tomplin's Chambers. Boxing Day was over, and the industrious classes were straggling back to the workaday world with its dull round of labour feeling slightly the worse in health and spirits, and considerably the worse in pocket, for the Christmas holidays. London, with its surrounding belt of dingy suburbs, wore its dullest aspect, as Jane Barnard, seated in a corner of a third-class carriage, surveyed this almost unknown world with curious eyes which let nothing escape them i don't see much to boast of in the old country she said to herself as she looked across at a shabby wilderness of roofs and chimneys broken here and there by some tall shaft which vomited clouds of black smoke that made a darkness in the air the narrow streets the straggling neighbourhoods badly begun and never to be finished the dirty window curtains in smoky windows the littered pens at the back of the houses which had been intended for gardens, all these seemed to the eye of Jane Barnard unspeakably hideous. The rural beauty of Daleshire had appeared small and mean in contrast with the broad rivers and mighty hills of her adopted country, but these London outskirts were uglier than anything she had ever seen, and she pitied the people who had to live in these squalid homes under this dull smoke-curtained sky mrs barnard had left highclere by the earliest train and hoped to return there at night she had brought a handbag containing her night-gear in case of being obliged to stay in london being altogether a provident and practical little woman she had a quiet courage and resolution which enabled her to face difficulties that would have daunted a weaker spirit a stranger in london ignorant of the ways of the town without a friend to help her she set about her work as calmly and as briskly as if the business that lay before her were the easiest thing in the world she found herself landed in euston square and she had to make her way to the temple she was chary of spending money and she was an excellent walker so finding on inquiry from a policeman that her destination was within two miles she walked off through the streets and squares strandwards looking about her as she went, with those bright, penetrating eyes of hers, but never pausing on her way, save to make an inquiry where the route appeared doubtful. This part of London struck her as more agreeable. The streets and squares had a respectable, old-established air. Everything was dingy and smoke-dried, but here there were shining windows and newly-whitened stoops, as Mrs Barnard called the doorsteps here there were at least prosperity and cleanliness, though the brightness and blue sky of America were missing. But by and by, when Jane Barnard found herself in the temple, just as St. Dunstan's clock was chiming noon, she looked about her almost awe-stricken by the ancient air of the place. The old church, the old hall, the grave old Queen Anne houses, the fountain, the distant glimpse of garden and river this was a kind of thing neither new york nor boston could show this was the growth of centuries a page out of history printed in brick and stone and mrs barnard began to feel proud of the mother country she found her way to elm court and painted on the jam of one of the doors discovered the name she wanted fourth floor mr tomplin mr green and mr colander i only hope i shall find him at home she said to herself the fourth floor seemed a long way towards the skies for the stairs were bad and the ascent laborious but the little woman tripped up the four double flights lightly and briskly and gave a sigh of relief as she drew breath before mr tomplin's door a black door with mr tomplin's name painted upon it in white letters come in said a voice in answer to her knock and on opening the door she found herself face to face with a gentleman who was eating his breakfast at a table loaded and littered with papers and books of all kinds there was only the smallest pretence of a lobby or passage between the outer door and this sanctum of law and domesticity but mr tomplin did not seem abashed at being discovered breakfasting though the hour was late and the whole thing had a dissipated air he seemed a little surprised at the sex of his visitor and that was all. Mm, "'Come in, if you please,' he said, rising to receive her, "'and take a chair by the fire. "'Cold morning, isn't it? "'I'm afraid you'll find the room smell of bacon,' he said apologetically, "'with a glance at the Dutch oven in the fender. "'I've just been toasting some. "'Shall I open the window?' Oh, "'Not on my account, if you please, sir. "'I'm very sorry to have disturbed you at your breakfast.' Oh, "'Don't mention it.' i ought not to be breakfasting so late but the fact is i was at a dance last night they called it small and early but that is a matter of opinion there were nearly a hundred people and the dancing went on till four o'clock this morning i am afraid sir that i have taken a great liberty in calling upon you began mrs barnard in a low serious voice i feel that i have no right to come here except the right which one human being in distress has to ask for help from another i am the daughter of that wretched man whom you defended at high assizes and in whose innocence you believed when everybody else was against him mr tomplin smiled as he dropped a lump of sugar into his coffee my dear soul he said in a pleasant friendly way i am heartily glad your father's sentence has been commuted if it were only for your sake but why do you suppose i am a believer in his innocence you defended him sir answered jane naively my dear madam i should have defended the most double-dyed villain that ever figured in the newgate calendar that is my profession however in this case i was certainly inclined to believe your father's story incredible as it seemed that a man who had only committed a robbery should plead guilty to a murder the man's manner impressed me it was just conceivable to me that there might be a state of mind in which a man would thrust his neck into the public halter rather than string himself up with a rope of his own purchasing a state of mind akin to lunacy but just short of it a queer case altogether it seemed and i tried to do my best with it particularly as it was the first murder case in which i was ever concerned And i naturally felt interested in it added mr tomplin cheerfully as he stirred his coffee you spoke nobly sir and like a man who had knowledge of the truth i think you must know who the real murderer was said jane barnard though perhaps you did not know enough to accuse him openly in your examination of sir everard courtney it was evident you had some secret knowledge i was told by a man who was in the court that day that sir everard turned deadly pale when you questioned him he did not relish my allusion to his wife that was a random shot which seemed to hit the bull's-eye replied mr tomplin lightly as he ate his bacon and dry toast but you must have had some knowledge sir which prompted that question urged jane barnard very little my brief was almost a blank i saw your father and he could tell me nothing except that he found mr blake's body in a ditch saw the glimmer of his watch-chain took watch and chain and emptied the dead man's pockets this occurred after dusk between six and seven o'clock as your father believes i had hardly an idea as to what line of defence to take the afternoon before the trial but in the coffee-room at the peacock that evening i fell in with a talkative local doctor uh, mr jebb i think he was called who had a great deal to say about the blake murder chiefly by insinuation and innuendo it was he who suggested that blake might have had an enemy that there might have been jealousy i had the greatest difficulty in getting at what he meant for although the man wanted to talk he was desperately afraid of committing himself but at last i got at the fact that blake had been in love with lady courtenay when she was miss rothney and that it was just possible sir everard might have been jealous of him did you ever hear that he was jealous i asked did it ever come to your knowledge that there were any unpleasant scenes or any quarrel between sir everard and blake Never says this Jeb, I attended Lady Courtney in her last illness, and I can vouch for it that Sir Everard was a devoted husband. And you never knew of any quarrel between him and Blake? I asked. Never, says he. Then, my dear fellow, says I, all your insinuations end in smoke. Well, Mr. Jeb just shrugs his shoulders and smiles blandly. A man must talk about something, he says. He can't be dumb. That's the distinction between him and the brute creation. I felt inclined to tell the man he was a humbug, but I made use of his suggestion, vague as it was, and fired my random shots, which, as you say, seem to have hit rather hard. And you know nothing of the real murderer? Nothing. Nothing and my dear madam why worry yourself about the matter any further your father's sentence has been commuted the penalty he now suffers is no more than would have been the natural punishment of the robbery of which he freely admits his guilt he has no grounds for complaint no she answered he is satisfied poor soul i don't think he will have to bear his punishment very long But I have four children in America, Mr. Tomplin, whose father is one of the best and truest men that ever lived. Are my sons and daughters to be told by and by that their grandfather was a murderer? Is my good husband to bear such a stigma as that upon his wife's name? All our friends in Boston know my maiden name. They will all have read about the trial at Highclere. I have come from America to clear my father's name, if I can.' "'Well, I fear you have come upon a useless errand,' "'answered the barrister kindly. "'The question of Mr. Blake's murder "'has been set at rest for ever "'by your father's trial and condemnation. "'A jury has found him guilty. "'The commutation of the sentence "'is merely an act of mercy upon the part of the Crown.' "'But if it could be proved that another man committed the murder, "'if another man could be brought to confess his guilt.' there is a great deal in such an if as that replied mr tomplin smiling at her earnestness and you cannot help me in any way sir you can give me no hint no clue unfortunately none i am sorry you have had your journey for nothing Oh, hardly that sir it is something to learn how little you knew when you cross-examined sir everard courtney because you see sir i had been building my hopes on a rotten foundation but there must have been something in his mind or he would not have flinched at your questions i don't know that a man might be sensitive about his dead wife's name i felt myself a ruffian and a cad while i asked those questions but it was necessary to do something i hope you believe that i did my best for your father I am sure of that, sir. I thank you for having received me so kindly. Good day. Good day to you, and I wish your project were a more hopeful one, answered Mr. Tomplin. Mrs. Barnard left him as quietly as she had entered. She walked back to the station, finding her way easily enough this time, had a little over an hour to wait for a train, and was back at Highclere soon after dusk. End of chapter 23